On February 11th, 1861, Abraham Lincoln boarded a train to come to Washington, D.C., leaving his home in Springfield, Illinois. He was on his way to be inaugurated as the 16th president of the United States, and he was well aware that many challenges were ahead of him. This was going to be a bittersweet parting. He was leaving the place and the people that he had loved dearly, and he didn't know if he was even going to be able to return. He suspected that his life may be in danger at some point over this time. He was accompanied to the train station by a multitude of people. And as he boarded the train, Lincoln paused. Uh, And at that moment, right before he left, he decided to uh, take a deep breath and offer a few brief emotional words to the crowd. He told the crowd what they needed to know. They needed to know that he cared for them. They needed to know that there were going to be challenges ahead, but that if God were with them, then they would be okay. They didn't need anything to fear. And then he told them what they needed to do. After telling them what they needed to know, he told them what they needed to do. They needed to pray and to keep hoping. This is a moving speech. You can find it on the internet, and I'd recommend that you take a minute to look it up at some point in time. It's a a fantastic speech, and it's a fantastic example of an effective farewell address. History is filled with addresses like this as great leaders leave their people. And the best leaders, they know the main question that is burdening the hearts of their people at those points in time. Whenever there's a transition and a leader is leaving, the best leaders know that their people are wondering, how are we going to make it without you here? How are we going to make it without your presence? In in our text today, in John chapter 13, Jesus begins to answer that question for his disciples. Chapters 13 through 17 are his farewell to the disciples, and this was going to be a bittersweet parting. He loved his disciples. He knew that there were going to be many challenges ahead. He knew that they were going to ask that crucial question, how are we going to make it without you here? Maybe you've felt that question in your own life, in your own heart. How can I make it without you here, Jesus? Again, life is hard. Life is hard, and we walk by faith, And not by sight. And there are many challenges to our faith all of the time, every single day. Maybe your own faith, maybe your hope has grown weary as of late. Maybe you wonder in your own heart, how can I make it without Jesus here? Well, Jesus is the best leader. That's the good news for us today. Jesus is the best leader. He knows the burdens that are on our heart, and he enters into that tension with us. He tells us what we need to know, and he tells us what we need to do. 
And so if you're wondering this morning, how am I going to make it? Here's how. Here's the message of John 13 for you. Here's how you're going to make it. You need to know Jesus's saving love and you need to practice a faith-filled obedience. Know Jesus's saving love and practice faithful obedience. That is the journey that God is calling you on today. And so, brothers and sisters, please let us now turn our attention to the Word of God, reading with me in John chapter 13, uh, verses 1 through 30. Uh, And since we're having some, you know, problems, I'll invite you to find this on page 900 in your pew Bibles, and there will be a responsive reading after I read. I'll say this is the word of the Lord, and then you can say thanks be to God, and then I'll pray our prayer uh, for illumination. Please join me in John chapter 13. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done for you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scriptures will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, 
Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Almighty Father, you have written your scriptures for our growth in godliness and for our comfort, for the direction of our lives, and for the assurance of our faith. And so I pray now that you would illumine your scriptures through your spirit so that we would be able to see true things in your word and know them deep in our hearts. Transform us now and let us hear your voice, we pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Now it's been a minute since we've been in John's gospel, and so I want us to pause for just a second and regain our bearings in John's gospel. This gospel book opens with a stunning theological introduction that Jesus Christ is fully human and fully divine, and he came on a mission from God to save sinners and reunite his people with God. Then John immediately launches into the public ministry of Jesus Christ. And from chapters 1 through chapter 12, Jesus Jesus prepares the world to believe. He spends over two years in public ministry, healing and teaching and persuading people to trust that he is the Messiah of God. But in the midst of this public ministry, the tension continues to rise And the religious leaders become increasingly angry with Jesus and the people around him become increasingly dissatisfied with his teachings. And so by the end of his public ministry, uh, John chapter 1 verse 11 sums up the situation well. Jesus came to his own and his own did not receive him. That's how, that's basically how chapter 12 ends. So in chapter 13, there's now a shift in the action. Jesus retreats from the public eye and gathers in the next few chapters with his disciples, preparing his disciples to believe. Now, as we hear in our text, he ministers to his own, his own who were following and for trust, who are trusting in him. This passage that we just read marks the beginning of Jesus' long farewell that we'll be covering over the next several chapters. And in this passage, he tells us exactly what we need to know and exactly what we need to do as we face the challenges ahead. 
here is what you need to know. If you're going to seek to make it, how are, how are we going to make it without Jesus here? Well, here's what you need to know. You need to know Jesus's saving love. Our passage in John 13 is a profound portrait of Jesus's saving love. Now, it might be a familiar passage for you, and so let me invite you to to slow down and savor and experience the scene that John paints for us in this chapter. It's just Jesus and the twelve. And they've gathered in the upper room to celebrate the Passover meal together. They are there together. They're ready for the meal to start. But just before they start eating, Jesus stands up. And he takes off his cloak. And he takes this towel. And he wraps it around himself. And then he begins to make the preparation to wash their feet. And he goes, disciple after disciple, washing their feet, bending down on on his knees, on the ground, washing their filthy, nasty, dirty feet. They are understandably shocked. Jesus, he is their teacher, their rabbi, their Lord, the one that they respected. He has moved from his place of prominence into a place of humiliating service. All of the people there in that room would have recognized what he had done. In taking a towel on himself, he was dressing like a servant, like a slave. And he's doing the work of a servant, a slave. Now, the Jews at that time, they thought that this was such a humiliating job, washing someone else's feet, that they didn't even want other Jews to wash the feet of another Jew. It was just too humiliating. Their, their feet were filthy from walking through dusty and dirty, messy roads in sandals. And so Peter voices the surprise that probably the rest of them were thinking but didn't want to say, do you wash my feet? No way. But Jesus insists that he must do this. This is a tangible expression of his profound love. Again, chapter 13, verse 1, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And this is how he chose to show his love. Jesus' love compels him to serve his people. It's like a, a parent with a young toddler who's just learning how to walk. The, the parent is watching the toddler toddle along, and then the toddler inevitably falls down and gets a scrape or bumps their head and starts crying, and the parent is compelled driven out of this interior love for the child to stoop down, to lift the child up and to offer comfort. And Jesus, in the same way, in his love, stoops down low to serve us, to lift us up. Philippians 2 puts it this way, Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. And we see that very clearly in this text as Jesus dresses and acts like a servant. Jesus says it himself, Luke chapter 22, I am among you as one who serves. The foot washing demonstrates Jesus' love. And it's not just the feelings of love. No, it is saving love that is on display. The foot washing is far more than just about getting the disciples some clean feet for dinner. 
The foot washing foreshadows Jesus' saving work on the cross. Philippians 2, again, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is what the foot washing is truly about. Jesus came to cleanse us from our sin. And that's why he tells Peter in verse 8, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. He's making a spiritual point. The only way for us to have a share with Jesus is to trust in him and have him cleanse us from our sins. And when we trust in him, when he does cleanse us from our sins, he then gives you what he promises. The language of having a share is the language of an inheritance. It's like Jesus is at that moment writing the disciples into his will, He's saying that once I wash you, then you can have access to my riches. You can have access to everything that is mine by right. Everything that I own, you can have. And here's what Jesus owns. Here's what Jesus possesses that he is giving you a share in when he washes you of your sin. Here's what Jesus possesses. He has intimacy with God. He has unparalleled intimacy with God. John chapter 1, verse 18. Jesus was at the Father's side. Translated literally, he was in the bosom of the Father. That's how close Jesus was to God the Father, in the bosom of the Father. That's a position of incredible intimacy. And then Jesus offers that intimacy to his fathers. Verse 20, uh, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. And the apostle John, who's writing this book and appears in this passage as the beloved disciple, John is a picture of the intimacy that Jesus offers to us. In verse 23, John, the beloved disciple, was reclining at Jesus' side. That's the exact same language that chapter 1 uses to describe Jesus. Jesus was at the Father's side. Jesus was in the bosom of the Father in the same way John, the beloved disciple, is in the bosom of Jesus. Jesus' saving love gives us that kind of intimacy with God. Now, not everyone here is going to find the language of love and intimacy compelling, I think if we're honest with ourselves, we might in, in some ways find ourselves be, uh, find, find, find that to be a little weird, uh, especially men. In our Western culture, men tend to shy away from expressions of male affection or intimacy. We are often uncomfortable with images in the Bible, uh, such as David and Jonathan weeping and embracing each other in their profound brotherly love for each other, uh, or even of John leaning his head back on Jesus's chest to be able to speak to him. Our culture tends to view friendship and intimacy uh, exclusively through the lens of sexuality, And and that's unfortunate because it then robs us of the deeper relationships that we were meant to have with each other and with God. But if you find this picture of Jesus' saving love challenging, if you uh, have trouble finding it compelling for you, here's how I want you to think about it. I want you to think about a beloved and respected military captain sacrificially serving his troops. 
There's a scene in the, the TV series Band of Brothers where Richard Winters leads a charge. And in order for him to lead the charge, the plan that he's set up for his men is that he is going to run alone from the place where they are all hidden He's going to run alone all by himself, exposing all of the danger onto him so that he can find the best position for them all to come and rally behind him. And so the, the picture shows him running as fast as he can. He is fully exposed. He's the only one out there. And all of the men at that point in time are watching him and they are in absolute awe of what he is doing and his great leadership. He did the dangerous thing that no one else wanted to do in order for all of them to succeed. And that kind of leadership commands respect. Jesus is that kind of leader. It's clear in the text, Jesus is engaged in spiritual warfare. Satan is mentioned in this text twice. Jesus is up against the enemy, the dark power that keeps all of us in bondage to sin. Jesus goes toe to toe with this dark, evil power. He does the dangerous thing that none of us could possibly do in order to cleanse us from our sin. He charges into battle alone for us, and he wins. And then even better than that, Jesus does not shame us when he wins on our behalf. He doesn't shame you for your failures or for your weaknesses. So many of us labor under the crushing burden of shame. But Jesus is the kind of leader who does not shame us. He knows our weaknesses. He knows that we need rescuing, but he doesn't mock us. He doesn't rub our noses in our failures. And how how can we be sure of that? How do we know that Jesus doesn't shame us? Well, look at how he treated Peter. Here's what he says in verse 10. The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean. And he's referring to salvation at that point in time. He's telling Peter that, yes, you'll continue to sin, but if you trust in me, your salvation is a once-for-all-time kind of thing. If you trust in Christ, you are spiritually clean before God. And any subsequent sin that you do after your initial trust in Christ, it doesn't change that. And so when you sin, you should confess your sin. It's good for us to confess our sins in church together. But as believers, we do not confess our sin from a posture of fear or shame, thinking that some, ta- some, some way we are deep down rotten and dirty to the core. No, you are clean. Jesus says in this text that you are forgiven. You don't need to feel shame. Also, look at how he treats Judas. When we read the text, this text makes it abundantly clear. Jesus knew who the betrayer was. And then when we hear in verse 3 that Jesus knew that the Father had given all things into his hands. And so that means that Jesus has all knowledge and all power and authority. He could call Judas out right in front of everybody. He could cast Judas out from them, shaming him on the way out the door. He could even call down fire and lightning from heaven upon Judas for his treachery. But look at what Jesus does. 
He, he treats Judas with incredible kindness and grace. He washes Judas's feet. Judas is a part of that group. He washes the feet of the one that's about to betray him. He offers Judas this morsel of bread at the meal, and that is not just a sign or a symbol of betrayal. No, in that culture, that's how a host would treat an honored guest. A host would would treat an honored guest by giving them a, a, a choice morsel of food from the common dish and give that to them to honor them. Jesus does not shame Judas. He is kind to him, even to the end. And I think that's why Judas's betrayal is so gut wrenching when we hear it in this passage. Jesus is very, very troubled by it. It's because he loved him. He loved Judas, and he was troubled because Judas was in sin. Jesus laments sin out of love. And I think that's also why the other people have no clue in the text about what's going on. They are confused. We hear the confusion in the text. And I used to think it was because it was like, oh, this is just a typical disciples moment. They they never have any clue of what's going on. I don't think that's what's going on here. Uh, I, I think that they are confused about what's happening because Jesus shows absolutely no malice towards Judas. Jesus treats him with total kindness. Again, even to uh, letting him leave on the way to the betrayal. This is the kind of leader that we need. This is the kind of love that we should find compelling. It's the kind of love that we need. Here's what you need to know if you're going to make it. You need to know Jesus' saving love. And when you know that, you don't need to despair, even when you face challenge or temptation or failure. When you know Jesus' saving love, you can have hope. You can have hope no matter what. Well, like all good farewell addresses, Jesus also tells us what we need to do. He tells us what we need to know, and he also tells us what we need to do. If you're going to make it for the long haul, here's what you need to do. You need to practice faith-filled obedience. You need to practice faith-filled obedience. Yes, Jesus wants you to obey him, but obedience begins with faith. Jesus really wants his disciples to believe. And belief isn't all that complicated. Jesus gives us the foundational bedrock belief of Christianity in verse 19. I'm telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. That's what Jesus wants us to believe, that I am he. We've looked at that, ex- that expression, that phrase before. It is an expression of Jesus' deity and his lordship. Jesus wants us to believe that he is sent from God as the savior that we need. As we've seen throughout the entire gospel of John, Jesus is constantly angling every conversation that he has toward his messianic identity. And it's no different here in this text. He's basically saying, look, I'm telling you this now so that when it comes to pass, you'll believe that I'm God. And that you will believe that I am the Savior that the Old Testament promised. That's what he wants his disciples to believe. We need to have faith in Christ if we are going to make it. We need to trust what he says about himself and what he says about his mission of salvific cleansing. Faith is the key to salvation. So how can we believe? 
How can we have and hold on to faith even when the going gets tough? Here's how. Let the saving love of Jesus inspire your faith. Let Jesus' saving love inspire your faith. Consider the truths that are in this text. Jesus desires to save you of your sin. He desires to cleanse you of your sin. Jesus, knowing who the betrayer was, allowed it all to take place, ensuring that he would eventually die on the cross so that he could cleanse you from your sins. Jesus wants to bring you into God's presence. So consider all of those things and then throw yourself onto God in hope. That's what faith is. It's throwing yourself onto God, believing that he is there, he is true, and he can indeed cleanse you from your sins. That is faith. Let Jesus' saving love inspire your faith. And that means when your faith is weak, you need to turn to Jesus and not your own efforts. Sometimes when we hit a slump in our spiritual lives, and when we notice that we're in a slump, we immediately say, what's wrong with me? Maybe I just need to try harder. Maybe I need to maybe do a couple more quiet times, maybe some more prayer, maybe some more fasting. Now, don't get me wrong, spiritual disciplines are incredibly important, but you can't use them frantically. You, you can't use them in, in this sort of anxious, trying hard to get yourself right with God. That's like laying in bed trying to fall asleep. It just doesn't work, right? You know that. It's the same with our, with our Bibles. You can't, you can't pick up the Bible and, and read it frantically in this, in this anxious effort to try and repair your faith. You're, you're just going to add to your anxiety if you do that. Christianity is not about more work. It's about life with God in Christ. And so when you're doing these things, when you're experiencing some sort of spiritual slump in your life, pay more attention to Jesus than you do yourself. You need to take your eyes off of yourself and put your eyes firmly on Jesus and his saving love. Let his saving love inspire your faith. And then also, if you are struggling with doubt, turn to Jesus not from Christianity's detractors or any sort of personal distractions in your life. Sometimes we hit a slump in our spiritual lives. Instead of focusing right back on Jesus, we say, what's wrong with Christianity? Maybe I need to explore something else. And that approach almost always leads to more problems. If you're tempted in that direction this morning, let the example of Judas in this passage offer a warning to you. Uh, The example of Judas shows us a hard truth that you can harden yourself to Christ. Judas had multiple opportunities to repent. When Jesus told the group, one of you will betray me, and you can just kind of picture all the disciples looking around at each other, like, who's he talking about? Judas could have immediately said, guys, it's me. I'm so sorry. When Jesus gave him that morsel of bread, he could have turned it down. But instead, he he took it and he went out. As one scholar puts it, Judas flirts with the darkness to such a degree that he becomes one of its own. He gave Satan a foothold and Satan used that to destroy him. He went out and it was night. And that's John's shorthand for 
Judas taking the path of spiritual destruction. If you want faith, if you really want faith, keep your eyes focused on Jesus, not yourself, not your doubts, not those who diminish Christ, not any mindless distractions in your life. Keep focused on Christ's saving love. Let his saving love inspire your faith. And then let his inspiring love enable you to practice a faith-filled obedience. That's what we're supposed to do. Practice a faith-filled obedience. Verses 14 through 15. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done for you. Now, that doesn't mean that Jesus intends all of us to now take off our shoes and wash each other's feet, that in perpetuity, in all times and places, churches have to do foot washing as kind of a Christian ritual alongside a baptism or the Lord's Supper. But here's what this does mean. We are absolutely supposed to mimic Jesus's logic of service. We're supposed to mimic Jesus' logic of service. He, the master, stooped down to wash us when we were in need and we weren't all that nice about it. And so that means that we must do the same. We are to go out into the world and serve those who aren't necessarily nice to us. That means we are supposed to go and serve those who, according to the eyes of the world, are beneath us. It means that we are supposed to serve messy and difficult people, and especially we're supposed to serve those in the family of the faith. These are our marching orders. And so I want you to take a minute and think about who Jesus might be calling you to serve. Just pause for a minute. I'm going to give you some silence to think about it. Let the Lord bring someone to your mind. If you're a a child or some of our youth here? Is there someone at school that needs your help or someone in your life who needs your care? Maybe is there someone outside of the social circle and you kind of sense that they need a friend? Or maybe is there someone who's just really difficult to love? Parents, is one of your kids being especially demanding? Uh, or are, are you finding one of your children to be in a season of increased need? Adults. Maybe someone at your place of work or in your neighborhood or apartment complex. Is it someone in your family? Someone in the church? Who comes to mind? Who comes to mind as we Think about who God's calling us to serve. Remember that person. And then prayerfully consider ways that you could serve them this week. Prayerfully consider ways that you could serve this person the way that Christ has served you. And when that person comes to mind, you might say, how in the world am I supposed to do that? How can I possibly serve them? That is going to be really hard work. How can I possibly live out this faith-filled obedience? Well, the answer is the same as before. Let Jesus' saving love inspire your obedience. That's how we grow in faith, and that's how we grow in obedience. This is not like scraping too little butter over too much toast. 
This is not just muster up the strength to serve. No, the gospel is good news. The gospel is life-giving. And when you focus on the saving love of Christ for you, he will inspire your desire to serve others. Of course, it was costly for Jesus to take on the role of the servant, even to the point of death. But it was the path to life and glory and exaltation. And now he invites you to join him on that same journey. As you die to yourself, you will experience new life. Verse 17, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. When you show the love of Christ to a messy and hurting world, you will enjoy the satisfaction of participating in Jesus' mission. You will experience the support of a loving community of brothers and sisters as we extend each other grace in the household of God, just like Jesus has given grace to us. And then you'll experience the presence of Jesus himself. Because as we'll soon see in this farewell address, Jesus does not leave us alone. He sends his spirit to be with us so that we can experience intimacy with God in the exact same way that John does as he's leaning his head back on his Savior. See, unlike the crowds that followed Lincoln to the train station in Springfield, Illinois, we do not have to grieve the absence of our beloved leader. Lincoln left, and the next time that he came back, it was for his funeral. But Jesus... Our Savior is alive, and he's in heaven, ruling over us as his people, and he has sent the Holy Spirit to be with each and every one of us. He is here even now, ministering to you through his word and through his spirit. Anytime you feel like asking, how am I going to make it, just remember, he's told you what you need to know, and he's told you what you need to do. You need to remember his saving love and then practice faith-filled obedience as you're inspired by his saving love. And when you do these things, he will be with you, ministering the love of God to you through the presence of the Spirit. That is how you're going to make it until Christ comes again. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word and for your promises. We are humbled by your saving love. And we're inspired by it to trust in you and to follow you. It gives us strength. It gives us courage and it gives us joy. And I pray that throughout this week you would do just those things. Give us faith. Help us to seek Jesus, in our times of spiritual darkness and doubt. Help us to seek Jesus in our times of weakness, our times of shame. Confirm to us your promises that you have cleansed us already. We thank you for your sacrifice, Lord Christ, on our behalf. And we thank you for your life, and we thank you for your spirit. Minister the intimacy of God that you have. Minister that to us, we pray, so that we would know you and love you as we ought to. We pray all this in the name of Christ. Amen.